What would you list as your top five most dramatic moments in movie history? Your top five most dramatic moments in movie history. For me, one of those moments has to be when the door of that dark, disheveled, tornado-tossed, black and white Kansas farmhouse opens and Dorothy steps out into the beautiful, colorful, vibrant, yellow brick road land of Oz. Wow. That was a moment of wonder, especially in 1939. Now, I always feel a little bit profane to compare the kingdom of God to a Hollywood movie. Yet, nevertheless, we're human, and God has made us visual beings. And that moment in movie history can visualize for us beautiful truth. What happens to us when God rescues us, rescues us out of the kingdom of darkness, and when he transfers us into the kingdom of his son? Wow. That is a a dramatic moment, a moment of great wonder. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we had something dramatic to mark that moment? Well, good news. God gives us that very something because God gives to us baptism. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, how baptism reminds us that our lives as believers must be dramatically different from the lives that we lived before God opened the door and welcomed us into his kingdom. Charles Spurgeon once preached that as citizens of the kingdom of God, there ought to be a something about us which sets us apart, a something which can be seen and understood. It must not require a microscope to perceive it, nor should it be so indistinct that few can discover any meaning of it. See, we have to allow people to put away their microscopes. And as baptized citizens of the kingdom of God, we must live our lives in a dramatically different way from this world. So toward that end, we're going to return this morning to Matthew chapter 28 and the Great Commission. So if you have your Bibles with you, in whatever form they are, if you'll take those, turn to Matthew chapter 28. If you don't have one with you, uh, the, the passage is printed in the bulletin. When you found your place, let's stand together uh, to honor the word of the Lord as we hear it read. Matthew Chapter 28, beginning in verse 16, this is the word of the Lord. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray.
Uh, Father in heaven, once again, we give you thanks for these really good words, promises contained in them, your presence with us. Thank you that even now, as we gather to to talk about your word, to to think it through, to, to pray it through, to understand it, you're with us, Spirit of God. Give us wisdom, give us insight, give us passion, give us desire to be the people you've called us to be and do the things you've called us to do. Toward that end, Lord, and mostly for your glory, we pray that you would bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So once again this week, we hear Jesus say to his disciples, go to all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So this morning, I'm going to follow Jesus' order here. Make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. That is Jesus' order. Now, we've talked for the last two weeks about making disciples, uh, the, the, the first chronologically here. And we've seen that we do that primarily through proclamation. Uh, we have good words of good news about Jesus to speak to people. No one will ever come to faith in Christ. No one ever will become a disciple apart from hearing those words, understanding them, and turning to faith in Christ. And so we seek to speak those words in a right and a sensitive way. Now we move on to baptism. Make disciples, baptizing them. Baptism, it is this great gift that God gives to us. It is intended to be a moment of great drama for every single person who becomes a disciple of Christ and for those who are bearing witness to that baptism. It is, in a sense, the opening of the door moment. And baptism dramatizes this break, this break in the life of a person from the kingdom of darkness as they move into the kingdom of light. Now, to give a full theology of baptism would require a lot longer than I have or you want to be here this morning. But I do want to honor the depth of the theology of baptism by reading the definition of it from the Westminster Confession Larger Catechism, question 165, that asks, what is baptism? Here's the answer. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein Christ hath ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of engrafting into him, of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. See what I mean? Each element in that 
definition could occupy more than a sermon. We could talk about the signs and the seals of, of Scripture, engrafting into Christ, remission of sin, regeneration, adoption, resurrection. All of that is symbolized in baptism. And so that's why the larger catechism then asks question 167. Now listen, you awake? I know I'm reading the confession, but it's so good. Question number 167 asks, how is our baptism to be improved by us? And here's the answer. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we are present in the administration of it to others. Improving our baptism. What in the world does the catechism mean by that? Well, somehow, it, it doesn't mean that we are somehow to make our baptism better. You know, a redo. <laughs> Choose a, a prettier day. Invite different people. Have warmer water available. Choose a different pastor. No, improve simply means this, to make the most of it, to use it, baptism, to benefit our lives. Your baptism, my baptism, was not something to be done once and forgotten. It's been said that Martin Luther responded to the temptations that he faced in life by saying, I am a baptized man. I, I could just picture all we know about Luther saying, I'm a baptized man, I'm a baptized man, I, I, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, I'm a baptized man to overcome temptation. I don't want us to neglect our duty. So as we talk about obeying Jesus' command to baptize disciples, which we do for others, let's at the same time bear in mind that we must improve our own baptism so that we'll be better disciples, so that we will live dramatically different lives in this world. And so for the rest of our time, I'm going to focus on the very last part of that definition I read to you from the, the confession, the part that talks about being solemnly admitted into the visible church and that those baptized enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. So this is the two key words, admitted and enter. And these words suggest that something has been left behind. Something new has been entered. And that's what baptism symbolizes. We have left. We have broken with. We have stepped out of the old kingdom and we have been admitted into a new one. Jesus teaches this in John 12. He says, now the ruler of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. See, two worlds. In the old world, in the old kingdom, Satan had sway. He ruled over people's hearts. He convinced the Jewish people 
for the most part, to reject Jesus. Their leaders to condemn Jesus. The disciple Judas to betray Jesus. Pilate to sentence Jesus. The soldiers to spit upon, beat, crucify, pierce Jesus. The watching people to mock and laugh and ridicule Jesus. See, that's the world over which Satan rules. The world in which he thought for a moment that he had gained the victory as Jesus hung dead on the cross. (laughs) But what do the scriptures teach us? Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus died on the cross, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, on the cross, death died. That's what happened, right? On the cross, Christ defeated death. It gave way to life, to Jesus' resurrection life. So life wins, death loses, Jesus wins, Satan loses. He loses His power over people. Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. Now notice he calls him a prince, not a king, because there is only one king, King Jesus. And God's people said, But Paul does attribute power to Satan in this world. It's power that's limited. It's under the sovereign rule of God, and his power is temporary. So the Apostle Paul writes in the uh, the end of his letter to the Romans, chapter 16, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Mic drop, fade to dark. But that is a time yet to be. And so now, Paul tells us as baptized believers to put on the armor of God, all of the armor of God. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, all of that to say, All of that to say that until Christ returns, there are two kingdoms. One has a prince. The other has a king. And baptism visibly dramatizes and demonstrates leaving one kingdom for the other. You know, in the very, very early church, early on in the history of the church, newly Baptized people, as soon as their baptism was completed, they were given white robes to wear. And they had to wear those white robes for an entire week. Wherever they went, they wore the white robe as a sign to themselves and as a sign to their not at all Christian friendly, let's feed them to the lions culture that they were now part of a new kingdom and that they now had a new king. 
what would you do if you had to wear a white baptism robe for an entire week? I think it would make it very difficult for all of us to keep one foot in both worlds, in both kingdoms. Baptism calls for a commitment to one world and a rejection of the other. Now, I'm going to switch illustrations. Forget Dorothy. Forget Oz. I want you to go with me now to the clubs that my dad used to take our family to for dinner when I was a boy. Just inside the door, my dad would take off his hat, and he would take off his coat, and he would hand them to the hat check girl. Now, I'm sorry, but that's what we called them in the day, hat check girls. And after my father had checked his hat and checked his coat, then we were escorted into the club. See, that's what baptism symbolizes. It's like taking off the old and checking it at the door before you enter the kingdom of God. Improve your baptism. Remember that you and I are now Christ's. You are his disciple. You are his son. You are his daughter. However you want to think about it because they're all true. And that is now first and foremost our identity as a disciple of Christ, as a child of God. Every other identity, check it at the door. The status we've attained in this world, check it at the door. The privilege we attained in this world, check it at the door. The race that defines us in this world, check it at the door. The political party that defined us in the old world, please check it at the door. The sin that we enjoyed in the old world, check it at the door. Listen, none of those things can any longer define who you are in Christ's kingdom because you are first and foremost his disciple. And your allegiance now belongs to him. And your thinking and your acting and your speaking must be defined by what he requires of you as your king and what he requires of me. And baptism reminds us of that. Now, <laughs> forget the hat check girl because we can actually find this demonstrated in Scripture. Back in Matthew 22, Jesus tells a parable specifically so he can describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a great king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The king sends out invitations to the feast, and many, many people refuse the invitation. So finally, the king sends his servants out to the roads, and they are to invite as many as they could find. Anybody they could find, invite to this feast. And Jesus very specifically says that both the good and the bad were invited. Well, these people accept the invitation, and they head for the the wedding hall. Now, not only has the king prepared a great feast for these people, 
But he's also provided very special wedding garments for his guests to put on before they enter into this very special celebration. Here's the grace of God. These people came from the fields. They didn't have time to go home and put on wedding clothes. Even if they had gone home, probably they were so poor they didn't even own wedding clothes. But the good and gracious king provided the clothes for them. That's who God is. It's always been that way. The Old Testament, the high priest Joshua stands before the Lord with filthy garments. And the Lord says, remove the filthy garments from him. The Lord says, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And they put clean clothes on Joshua and a clean turban on his head. God's grace. Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. God's grace. Nevertheless, in the parable, the king requires that in order to enter the hall, the guests had to check their old clothes at the door and put on the new clothes that he gave them. So, when the king finally arrives at the feast to greet his guests, he's spotted. One guest who was not wearing the wedding garments that he had so graciously provided. And so the king said to the man, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And Jesus says, The man was speechless. So the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. See, the feast was open to the good and to the bad. But they had to enter into that celebration, which is like the kingdom of God, by the requirements of the king. Baptism reminds us that we must wear gospel clothes in Christ's kingdom. We have to take off our of-this-world clothes and put on the ones that Jesus provides for us. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Galatians 3 when he says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ new clothes. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. First and foremost, Paul's not suggesting here that we erase or fail to see race or gender. No, God made those distinctions and he made them beautiful. He just means check those things at the door because now, first and foremost, you are in Christ. And so baptism reminds us of our new allegiance, our new identity in Christ. Baptism reminds us that we must wear the clothes that he gives us. Improve your baptism. 
I imagine the wedding guest who refused the king's robes was all boldness before the king came in. I imagine him pushing his way into the feast on his own terms or as we might say, doing it his own way. Arrogantly eschewing any requirements placed on him, dishonoring the king and the purpose for which the feast was being given. So dusting off his old clothes and self-judging them to be just good enough, saying, the king can't tell me what to wear. But he only thinks that (laughs) until he sees the king. When the king appears, and when he asks the man where his wedding garment is, the man is speechless. Nothing to say now. It's not with glee that I say this. Many people are going to be speechless when they see the king, when they stand before him. The arrogance, the haughtiness, the ridicule they had toward the Lord, they're scoffing at, they're perverting his will and his way, some even encoding that perversion into law. All of that is going to drain right out of them when they see the king. And make no mistake about it, every eye is going to see him because every person will stand before the Lord. And so, you and I, we have our commission from Jesus here, don't we? Go, make disciples, baptize them so that fewer and fewer and fewer people are speechless at that moment. So that more and more people can say, look, Lord, look, I am dressed in the clothes that you graciously gave me. Lord, I'm, I'm confident that you look at me in this moment through the righteousness of Christ. You don't see me. You see Jesus in me. I'm bold in this moment. I'm not speechless, Lord, because I'm in Christ and because I believe your promise that those who are in Christ will be welcomed by you. I wish we still wore baptism robes so that when we we look down at them, we would remember the, the grace of God in getting them to us. We would look down at them and remember that we are part of a new kingdom and bow before a new king. And to remember even when we take those robes off, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Always dressed in his righteousness. Always called to walk in newness of life. Baptism reminds us of the better thing. Of a beautiful king. Of a beautiful, vibrant, colorful kingdom that we enter. The good news in Jesus' parable is that the wedding hall was filled with guests. That's good news of good hope for us. Our labors, 
as we obey this great commission of Christ will not be in vain. People will respond to our proclamation of the gospel. Disciples will be made, and then we will baptize them. What a blessing that Jesus commissions us to engage in an activity that always reminds us of who we are and who we belong to as we make our way through this world to the one not with yellow bricks but with streets of pure gold. But for now, while we wait for that world, I pray that all of us will improve our baptism, that we won't neglect it, that it will remind us of our identity in Christ, and that's better than any identity the world can offer to us. I pray that our baptism will remind us that our lives and our loves must be drastically different from those of this world and people must not need a microscope to see the difference. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you're so good to us. So many ways. So gracious, so loving. Thank you for gospel clothes. What a blessing, Lord. We thank you for them. Help us to improve our baptism, Lord, too. Always keep before us your grace and what you've done for us. Always seeking to honor and bow before you as our new king. Lord, to be of this world, in this world, but not of it. Father, never to allow this world to identify us or find our identity in it, but always in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.